So this week, we're going to be in James chapter 2. As I said in my last episode, for the next few weeks, we're just going to be working our way through this book. So if you didn't listen to last week's episode, which was chapter 1, please go back and listen to it. So that way you can be caught up. And also, before I start this, in my last episode, there was a point in it where I was listing off religions. Um, The words I said were uh, Christian, Catholic, Jews, etc. And I wanted to clear something up because as the way I said that, I just, when I was listening back through it, I realized what I meant to say was Protestant, Catholic, Jewish. I didn't mean to put an exclusionary rift between Christian and Catholic because that's a huge controversy enough as it is. I do believe Catholics are Christian. There's different views than Protestants. That thing can be agreed on, but I didn't mean to put that distinction. So I just wanted to clear that up before going forward because it was something that I noticed. With that out the way, though, so we're going to look in chapter two, and I'm going to do like last time, kind of breaking this down paragraph by paragraph. Um, There's only two, I'm sorry, there's only three really uh, main points throughout this. So although in my Bible it's four paragraphs, it's more of three sections. So I'm actually going to break it down in three sections. Um, So let's start with chapter two. I'm going to read it and then kind of go over it. So this is verses 1 through 7. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So what I gathered from this and it's could be more than one or two things, but my main thing I see from this is just don't look down on the poor. You know, too often, even the best of person is going to look down on the poor. That's part of our sinful nature is to just look down on others. Even when we're the lowest of the low, we'll still look down on someone. But especially when you're in a place of comfort, when you're a place of riches, and that doesn't even necessarily mean riches in, you know, millionaire, just not in a poor situation. It's so easy to look down on the poor, but don't look down on the poor. Don't make a distinction between a rich man and a poor man because God doesn't. In God's eyes, we're all naked babies. You know what I mean? So he doesn't see the crown of jewels and all that stuff as meaning anything. They're worthless in his eye. We are the ones who put worth on crowns and jewels and all that. So don't make a distinction between the poor and the rich. And Especially here in America, we're very bad about that. Um, We look down on the poor a lot. Um, We tend to look at a poor person, especially someone who's in a rough situation. They could be homeless or drug user, uh, whatever it may be, and we immediately cancel them out. We're not going to help them at all. They've put themselves in this situation. 
whatever excuse we want to give, we're so easy to do that, especially a homeless person that looks like they might be messed up. But we don't know that. And that's the difference between us and God. God knows why that person is there. He knows their backstory. He knows their heart. This person may have been someone who was already born mentally unstable because of sin being in the world and then had a terrible childhood, entire family died, and this is where they're at, and they just need help, and no one's giving them the help. But we don't know that. We walk by, see this person, and go, ugh, why did they put themselves in this situation? But God doesn't see it that way. He doesn't look at that. He doesn't make a distinction. We do. So we need to try to not look down on the poor and just assume that we know why this person is that way, because we don't. And we shouldn't honor them any less because God would honor them with everything. Jesus never said, oh, go away, crippled man. You should have been better. No, he heals them and then says, be better from here on. And that's how we should help these people. Let's help them out and then give them the you know, judgment of, hey, do better from here on. But let's never just assume that they deserve to be where they're at or anything like that. We should always help the poor. But with the whole making distinctions thing, I'm going to put this a little further than just poor and rich. I think we should also not make distinctions in putting people on a higher pedestal in the sense of educated and uneducated, or a famous pastor and a small pastor, or more poor and less poor. So what I mean by that is, too, like, I see so many people who only watch or listen to these extremely famous pastors. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with that. I listen to a few as well. But some people put these pastors on such high pedestals that they only listen to these huge name, emotional speakers and stuff. And not saying they're bad, but there's so many pastors out there that we should be willing to listen to the small one. We should be able to listen to the one who may not talk as smooth because Smooth talk is not a sign of being a good pastor. That's just a sign of being a smooth talker. I mean, look at Moses. He couldn't talk at all. So that's why Aaron had to do the talking for him. But that didn't change his call from God. He led people out of um, Egypt. So let's not put certain pastors or certain educated pastors or educated people on higher pedestals. Let's be willing to listen to anyone. But also I said more poor and less poor. Let's not put a distinction between them. So say you see someone who, like your neighbor or someone in a moment needs $100. They got into some weird rut. And instead of saying, oh, well, he doesn't need that $100. He's got a house, a car, and all that. There's a starving kid in Africa who definitely needs this $100 more than him. Don't put that distinction there. Help the person out who is there needing it in the moment. Don't. That's more of a cop-out to say, oh, there's someone who might need this more. There's always going to be someone who needs something more. You can get down to the poorest of poor, the least of the least, and there's still going to be someone who's technically worse off than them. So never be like, oh, maybe I shouldn't help this person because I should help someone else instead. Because you're just if that's the mindset you have, you're going to be searching forever for someone to help. Just help whoever's in need at that moment. But also with the, this whole section, because I kind of maybe dived off a little bit, one thing to keep in mind, too, is it says God chose those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. So poor people typically, and this is a generalization, so don't quote me 
as gospel on this, but poor people typically will have a stronger faith because as not having the constant food supply, the constant financial supply, they literally have to rely on God for everything. Those of us with money, those of us who are never without food, not saying we don't rely on God. Don't, don't mishear me. I know a lot of y'all are going <laughs> to mishear this and say that I'm saying y'all don't have faith because that's not what I'm saying at all. Please listen. But when we so easily just have our you know, weekly paycheck hit and we know how to budget, we know how to do all this stuff, we're not really having to constantly rely on God to just have food on the table. We know he provides it for us, but we're not in that constant struggle of, Lord, you have to help me or else. Whereas poor people are in that situation more and their faith grows stronger from that because they see God on a everyday basis provide in ways that we can't even imagine until or unless we were in their certain situation. So they are rich in faith because of this. And that points out, sticks out to me too, they're rich in faith because so often we think of riches as finances, but richness is more than finances. Riches in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Someone who's rich in faith is heir to the kingdom. So let's aim to be rich in faith, not rich in finances, because finances can change at any moment. Any catastrophe can take away all of your money that you work so hard for. So never put your faith in that. Put your faith in the riches of faith. And remember that if you're rich in faith, you're an heir to the kingdom of God. So going on to uh, verses 8 through 13, it says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all, or I'm sorry, of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So let's remember to always be merciful to those who are struggling with sin, to those who do sin, and be careful about how we judge. Because according to this, it's saying if you break any part of the law, you are just as guilty as anyone else who has broken a part of the law. There is no distinction. In God's eyes, there's law abiders and law breakers. There's not, you know, as we have all these different classes and systems and all this, in his eyes, it's lawbreakers, law obeyers. So if you've broken a part of the law, you are the same as anyone else who has broken a part of the law. And God has mercy on us, though, for that. He's forgiving for us. And we need to remember that in that same mercy and forgiveness he has for us, we need to express that to others. And one thing that stuck out to me just with that whole point in mind, and this may be a little controversial thing I'm going to go into, but... You know, I never started this saying I wasn't going to be controversial. So one of my biggest pet peeves in how Christians judge people, because I myself judge people. I'm not going to sit here on my own pedestal and say I've never judged. I do it a lot, just like most people do. Um, but one thing that, you know, it's a huge issue in America, so we see it, and the world. But the way Christians handle homosexuals, 
it really upsets me because to be very clear, I am very conservative and very biblical on the issue of homosexuality. I believe what the Bible says is true. There's no interpreting to it. What it states about homosexuality is the truth. But here's the thing. In the same verse that we see homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom, we also see idolaters will not inherit the kingdom. Adulterers will not inherit the kingdom. And we see the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom. Now, I know many people who are claiming to be Christians who judge gay people so hard and can fit into one of those categories. Because remember, in Jesus' eyes, when we not just actually cheating on your wife is adultery. When you lust on another woman and you are married, that is adultery. In Jesus' eyes, he says there's no distinction. That is adultery. So you are now, when you have those lustful thoughts and commit adultery, you are in that class with a homosexual. In the same way, idolaters. I'm willing to bet every single person ever to live has been an idolater at some point, or maybe even still is. Because here's the definition for idolatry. It says, extreme admiration, love, or reverence for something or someone. Now, we have a literal show in America called American Idol. And I'm not saying, I mean, there probably are some people who love that show so much that they do idolize whoever wins it or whatever. But think about famous people, sports teams, anything like that, that people devote their lives to. You know, I live in the South. College football, I mean, it's joked about it being bigger than religion. And it's not even a joke. It really is. I know so many people who die for college football. That's idolatry. If your entire life revolves around that, that is idolatry. That is in that same class of homosexuality. And so if we are to be merciful on one another, we need to remember that we fall victim to these same law-breaking motives. So we can't just specifically pick and choose who we want to not be merciful to because God has mercy on us. And we should have mercy on those as well who are struggling in the same law-breaking sins that we are in. And yes, we may be trying to escape that. And that is the difference because we are not just accepting, oh, I'm an idolater. That's who I am. It's okay. There is a distinction there. Don't get me wrong. But it, the way so many people are so awful and judgmental to people because of their sins, it's just awful because we are all sinful. We all break the law at some point. It's just a part of our sin. If we didn't break the law at some point in our life, we wouldn't be sinners. And then we would be calling salvation meaningless because we wouldn't be sinners. There would be no point for it. But since we are sinners, that is why we need Jesus. That is why we need Christ. But enough of beating that dead horse. Let's move on to the last section of this chapter. So verses 14 to the end says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. 
Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And a scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So there's two verses of that that really stick out to me. The first one being 17. These are the ones I just want you to implant in your head. 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Just keep that in your mind and heart always. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The other verse that really stuck out to me in that whole section was 19, which said, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So I'm going to go over all of this at one, but I'll, I'll speak on those two verses as well. So the main purpose of all of this is saying that we do have to have works. So there are many people in the Christian world and non-Christian world who have a wor salvation by works mindset. Now that is not true. Works does not grant salvation. But works is needed to prove that you have faith. Because if you don't, if you say you have faith, but you aren't doing anything with it, you aren't working or doing anything, do you really even have faith? My example that I came up with for that is say there's a, you know, weird bridge or something across a cliff. And someone says, hey, do you have faith that that bridge is stable for you to walk across? And you say yes. And then they ask you to walk across it. And not because you're scared of like heights or anything, but just whatever in this scenario, you say, no, I'm not going to. Well, why not? Don't you have faith it's stable? Oh, yeah, I have faith it's stable, but I'm not going to walk across it. Well, then it doesn't seem like you have faith it's stable. Otherwise, you would walk across it, no problem. And in the same way, that's how we should handle our faith. If someone says, oh, do you have faith that Jesus is our king and our savior? Yes. Then why aren't you doing the commands he left behind. Oh, I believe he's our king and savior. Okay, then he left us a whole list of commands and a whole list of ways to live our life. Why aren't you doing any of those? So if we're claiming that we have faith in this, in Jesus's resurrection, then why are we not doing what he said to do? And that's what this whole thing is saying. If you don't have works, your faith is dead. That's what 17 says. So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. So faith is dead without works. And that's how the section ends as well. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, faith apart from works is dead. But let's also make sure we don't put that huge distinction or a huge chasm between the two. Like, you can't just have works. Works by itself is more so dead than just faith by itself because we can never achieve anything to grant us salvation. Salvation is through faith alone. But our works are an expression of our faith. 
if we just say we have faith but never do anything, we're not expressing it. It's the same way as me as a Baptist believes we should be baptized. That is our outward expression to the world showing that we have accepted Christ in our life. You know, that baptism does not save us, but we are called to be baptized to show the world through a physical expression that we have repented of our sin and given our life to Christ. But on the flip side of people saying works can lead to salvation, the other side of that is don't let anyone ever tell you faith is enough, in a sense, because faith is enough. Well, don't mishear me. Just like earlier when I said don't mishear me, people miss be hearing what they want to hear. But faith isn't enough because if you're truly having faith, you're going to be doing. And you need to remember that too, because if you just are uh, I don't want to call you a lazy Christian, just a a lazy Christian. That's where I'm going to use. I can't think of anything better. So forgive me if that's offensive. But if you're just someone who, you know, occasionally goes to church, occasionally opens the Bible, just does their, you know, Monday through Friday job, comes home, watches Netflix all day, and that's all they ever you ever do, and you say, Oh, well, I'm I'm not worried. I'm going to heaven. I have faith. God saved me. Yes, God has saved you, and that faith is good that you have it, but you're not expressing that faith in any way you need to be out doing at the very least going to your church maybe serving your community sharing with people helping people doing something besides just your daily monday through friday grind and netflixing um, that's not an expression of faith in any way and then especially if you get you know maybe worked up anytime something doesn't go your way you get freaked out anytime a financial burden appears out of nowhere you know, if you're always in turmoil and things are unexpected, things are happening, that's not an expression of your faith. If you have faith that God is in control, when things hit the fan, you're not going to be all bent out of shape and everything. So just always remember that too, that that even that can be the works being done that when, you know, say your car breaks down on the way to work and someone sees that and they see you and you're saying, oh, it's okay. You know, things will be all right. Life goes on. Uh, God's got this, that in itself is a work because you're showing that you, you are showing that you know, God is in control. That is an expression of faith through works rather than freaking out, thinking it's end of the world, making yourself literally sick because this unfortunate thing happened. So keep that in mind. And I wanted to kind of end with the verse 19 which said, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. And that just really sticks out to me. I think there's another few verses in the Bible that kind of say the same roughly thing. And it's that, you know, some people think so highly of themselves just because they believe in God. But even the enemy believes in God. Of course the enemy believes in God. That's why they're fighting against it. So there's nothing inherently special about believing God. I say that with a grain of salt. But there's nothing really special about believing in God because the enemy doesn't. But obviously, the enemy's not going to be in eternity in heaven. So, you know, just saying you believe in God, okay. <laughs> a lot of people do. A lot of evil things do. A lot of the enemy does. The enemy does. So that's why, too, you have to have more than just this simple belief. You have to have Christ living in you. And if Christ is living in you, the Holy Spirit is in you, is dwelling in you. Christ said when you accept him into your heart, then the Holy Spirit begins to dwell in you. And the Holy Spirit is always working. So that too, when we're 
expressing our faith through works, that's really the Holy We're getting to see the Holy Spirit work. And that's a pretty exciting thing. If you've ever, if you're not a Christian, you may not understand, but hopefully my Christian brothers and sisters will. Seeing the Holy Spirit work is miraculous. It's an amazing thing. It's unexplainable. It breaks all reality when we get to see him work. And just knowing that your expression of your faith is also coming from the Holy Spirit. And that's just him using your body as a vessel, more or less, to do these things and him changing your heart to be more in line with the Father's ideal of life. That's a pretty beautiful thing, too. So I know this episode went kind of long, um, for especially how few verses this chapter was, but there was a lot to unwind and a lot to open. So thanks for sticking with this episode, um, and I hope you'll be back next week. Next week we're going to tackle chapter 3 as I continue to learn and grow and see how God leads me to speak and interpret things. It's exciting, just like having the Holy Spirit in us is exciting. But all this is new to me. All this is learning because I'm not a pastor.